All right, I have a book here, donated book. Some of you have maybe read it, some of you haven't. It's a really nice book. It's called The Five Love Languages. How many people have read The Five Love Languages? Oh, only, all right, Shirley. Thank you, Shirley. All right, it's by Gary Chapman. It's, uh, I, didn't, I don't think I've ever noticed. Now, this is a newer edition. I had uh, given my book away to somebody, and somebody I recommended the book to bought me a copy to replace my one I lost, or whatever, gave away. But the subtitle is The Secret to Love That Lasts. I don't think that was in mine. I think it was just the five love languages. they got to sell books by adding a subtitle. Okay. Five love languages. All right. Our synodical president, Matthew Harrison. Some of you might have heard of him before. Some of you might not have. doesn't really matter. But he said this book changed his marriage, changed his life. Five love languages for kids. I don't, uh, that makes me a little nervous. All right, hang on. I'm actually going to see here. Other books by Gary Chapman. And there is the Five Love Languages Men's Edition. <laughs> five Love Languages Gift Edition. Five Love, Lang or five love Languages of Children. Again, of course, I'm being a little cynical. I would say he's just trying to sell books. Um. Uh, yeah, in, interesting in like the weird sense. All right. It's a good book. It's very easy to understand, very helpful. My, uh, so the five love languages. What are the five love languages? They are, I'll, I'll do them in order here. Words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Those are the five love languages. Does anyone want to take a wild guess what mine are? <laughs> Holly already knows. Okay, this is where the book is a little too simplistic. Everyone speaks these at certain times, but we have some maybe more prominent ones. And one of the things, one of the easiest ways to figure out what your love language is, is by doing finding out what you do for people. Like, how do you how do you like be special to people? Because we always presume, you know. That that's that's what they want because I think that would be nice. So, for example, my father-in-law continuously cleans our van when we come up because his love language is acts of service. Mine is not. <laughs> so it only makes me feel like I have a dirty van. <laughs> but he's just doing it because that's how he receives love. That's right. We actually had this big discussion at my house, my my parents' house. Changed his life. Actually, it did. It was pretty funny. Uh, he still did. So we actually said, I actually told him, hey, I really appreciate the van cleaning because it's the only time we get our van cleaned. So I figured we, at least we should do it at least once a year. Holly says it's not true. It's not true. Sort of. Okay, the, uh, yes, we're, let's see here. Mine are quality time and acts of service. So, 
probably number two. Quality time is probably my most spoken love language. Um, let's see here. I think they're all pretty self-explanatory. Physical touch, always people always kind of revert to like the, you know, more intimate, but it's, you know, pat on the back or, you know, the back rub. Touchy feely. You're not. Yep. So yeah. So what's interesting is uh, the book is is kind of cool because it reveals like how you just have to get over yourself and say, "This is how I love." I continually try to love my well, in my circumstance try to love my wife in this way, but it's just, it's not being accepted. She doesn't, what, does she not love me? No, this is not now, I'm saying, generally speaking. Oftentimes it's the husband and wives that are, right? I mean, like, the husband just keeps trying, doing the same thing over and over again, like. That's right. You know, hey, I'm making breakfast every day, right? But. <laughs> <laughs> my my toast is burned every yeah that's it but I tried to make it isn't that very funny okay okay anyways so that was that was left here so all right we're not gonna talk about that today though uh, if you if you don't have a Bible uh, well you can listen I guess First Thessalonians why don't you open your Bible to that we're gonna I mean it's only two pages so. Just turn to page, uh, well, I mean, uh, chapter 1. All right, today we're going to, okay, so uh, has anybody read it this last week? I'll t uh, if, if you did, you got anything to say about it from this last week? I do. I mean, I, I thought, hey, I'm going to do this myself and see what kind of sticks out to me. You know, we have a real distinct idea on, on certain passages. Like, so this armor of God in Ephesians 6, that's... It's kind of like the most popular, I guess, you know, people. I use it in confirmation, you know. Uh, what's the difference? Well, there's different words. I mean, I don't know if you read that. I mean, <laughs> you mean in content? Yeah, okay. I know, isn't that terrible? I've already started. Well, righteousness usually deals with the, yeah, right, okay. So, I mean, indirectly, yeah, it's, it's, it's all pointed towards the same direction. But in Thessalonians, it has a very distinct flavor because in Thessalonians 1.3, I think it's 1.3, yes, okay, good. Uh, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. So what Paul is drawing upon is this echo of what happened already in the beginning of, of the letter. So what Paul's doing is pastorally applying uh, God's word in a, in a specific content. So and I would say that's the biggest difference is that the application of God's word. So in Ephesians, this image is very uh, blatantly ripped off from sentry duty in, in the Roman guard. 
Uh, and so he has this whole. But in Thessalonians, though, what's 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 uh, not only are the words different, but what else is different about the two images? For those who kind of remember, there's there's things missing in in the Thessalonians. What's what? Well, breastplate, yeah, br the breastplate is, yeah, for protection. But the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians and the breastplate of faith and love. I think Ephesians covers the whole uniform. That's right. The helmet, the forearm, the legs. The, the, the feet and all that stuff. And the sword, right? It's a big one. Yeah, right, so... Yeah, so Ephesians has, uh, okay. Right. Okay, good, yeah. Oh, good job. That's it. That's great, yeah. Uh, do you guys understand that? So, like, Ephesians, it's, it's a lot more graphic in that sense, more like, I mean, graphic in the sense imagery-based. And it's a lot more, hey, I'm getting ready to really do some battle where Thessalonians is uh, hey, this is what the guy does every day and that actually is helpful so Paul in Thessalonians remember there's there's some issues going on but the letter as a whole is very positive it's like hey I love you people you love me, I love you. Hey, let's keep it going more and more. That you might love more and more, Paul says. Uh, and so, so applying that perspective, you wouldn't come to them and say, this is what's wrong with you people, and this is what you got to do. Because people would be like, what are you talking about? Why are you, why are you so worked up? I don't know, have you ever anybody in that, in that circumstance? You're like, calm down. Things are okay. Don't worry about it. So Paul, in Ephesians, it's a whole different perspective. And that has to do with a little bit of uh, kind of what's happening in the circumstances of Paul. Because remember, Thessalonians, Timothy just came back and gave this glowing report. So Paul's like, hey, keep going. Jan and Carol. You know, I found it interesting Right. Yep. And I know, you know, we don't know if this was three weeks, three months. Yeah, right. It wasn't three years. Um, and, and then he literally got booted out. Right. Ran out of town. Jason and all of his followers ended up having to post bail. Right. In this whole situation. And, and maybe that's what brought about. Yeah, right. You know, we read about him being with the Ephesians for three years, and, and here, I think if he was <laughs> there three months or maybe six at the outside, right. um, that was something that struck me, that there's so little in Acts about right. being there. It says he went to the synagogue. It says there were a bunch of people, some people that believed and others that didn't. Right. The Judaizers came in and started persecuting the Judas, the, the Jews who did believe, right. and the Gentiles who were converted. 
this little nutshell, and yet there's this huge, <coughs> huge feeling of um, heart right. for these people. That's right. And it, it probably part of it was the fact that in order to get themselves out of this whole thing, it literally cost them money. Right. Yeah, it did. No, absolutely did. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, that actually struck me the most this last week, too. Yep. Oh, the difference. Yes. Oh. Yes, right. What struck you about Thessalonians? That's right. Okay, so in chapel, read from second... I mean, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through kind of 14a. It's a little bit longer, but I wanted to do that just for that very reason. Paul is recounting this experience, and by recounting it, he is drawing, you know, basically this, this whole, like, hey, do you remember our weekend in Paris? You know, this whole, like, this great thing that is awesome, okay? And uh, that means something, because that has changed them as people. Uh, and that's supposed to give encouragement and drawing upon the path. So we talked about several weeks ago how our future is kind of decided in the past, and then because our future has a very concrete goal, we can live a certain way in the present. So Paul is, is drawing upon that whole kind of framework even within their own life. And so, uh, which turns out, I mean, which at first seems like, hey, this guy's just kind of telling a narrative. But he's, he's actually, he's demonstrating in their own life this kind of hope that they have based upon their own experience with one another. And it mimics what Jesus has done for them. So, uh, yeah, actually, uh, so actually, let's just kind of stick with this a little bit because, so Genesis chapter 2, or uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, so let's just kind of read this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. Okay, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So, uh, that's important right now because what Paul is drawing upon is, hey, this is kind of the real deal. You know, I, I got shamefully treated in Philippi, in Thessalonica, things weren't perfect either. Okay. Uh, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. That's, that's important. Somebody, like, why would, you talk, why would you say that? Why would Paul say that? What's that? Excuse. An excuse? Well, I, I mean, just in normal conversation, you don't say, hey, I, I'm coming to talk to you, not because I want something out of you. Because if you say that, what do people think about you? You want something out of them. So why would Paul say that? Nancy. Oh. 
Right. Yeah, right. <coughs> now, okay, so this is interesting. What Paul, okay, so uh, one more verse here. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, which means, what, did, what kind of words did he have? The opposite of flattery. Uh, sincere or maybe, yeah, zinger truthful kind of stuff. Um, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. See, what Paul, Paul is, this is kind of interesting. I, I, it's sort of, I touched in the outline a little bit, but um, so in these days you had traveling philosophers who would go around and teach. But, so I think the most, uh, I, uh, I was thinking about analogies this last week, and I think the, the analogy that works best is, is like politicians when they're campaigning. So they show up to a town, and, you know, what are they going to say about the town? Oh, yeah, hey, yeah, it's like, I love Cleveland, you know, like rock singers will do to get the crowd going. Oh, man, this guy loves us. This is great. Um, words of flattery. So you kind of, you know, grip the audience in, right? Now, of course, why do politicians do it? What do they want? Yeah, they want your money. And not only money, but also their votes, the support. They, you know. So actually, so this, I think that's, the analogy completely breaks down very quickly, but I, I think that is sort of kind of similar. I mean, because they're kind of doing it. So the, the philosophers would come, they would teach. Uh, and, and usually, I mean, people, it sounds kind of nerdy, but people were very interested in this teaching. I would say it's similar to like TED Talks today, you know. You ever heard of TED Talks? Like, why oh, TED Talks are these traveling, you know, uh, symposias or seminars where you have this really smart people will give like these presentations on, on certain topics. So, uh, um, but the, the the presentations usually range. I mean, I've seen TED Talks of like five minutes to like twenty minutes. They're not super long. Like. Uh, I think the latest one I watched was about the scientist who is interested in growing houses using like fungus and sand. So like he, it, really interesting, fascinating thing where like you put these microorganisms in like the desert and it can create structures. Basically it'll create the structure and then you just, you wipe out all the loose sand and that's supposed to stop the Sahara de desert from growing. Oh, very interesting, right? Okay, this is a TED talk. Anyways, but you see these. I mean, they, they're like it's like in the United States. You're like, holy smokes! I mean, people come and listen to this stuff. They pay money to go and listen to a TED talk. Total nerdville, right? Um, but you know, people a lot of people go and, and listen to it. So I, I think that's similar to the, these traveling philosophers. It'd be like. Hey, did you hear this guy showed up? Let's go listen to him. Okay. And the thing is, though, he made, they, that's how they made money. They would make money by, yeah, teaching. So Paul, what is Paul doing here? Paul is establishing this whole relationship. He's drawing upon their own experience, but he's literally transforming this. So, 
So, you know, Paul shows up to the town. Oh, hey, people should, oh, this is kind of interesting. Well, he's, what? He's not, he's not trying to get us, he's not saying, yay, Thessalonica. He's telling us we're, we're not that great. What's up with this guy? You know, so that's what it says right there. Um, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, if you know what I mean, you know. And then uh, without any uh, pretext for greed, like he didn't ask for money. In fact, if you keep reading, what did Paul actually do? He didn't ask for money. What did he do? He worked. Yeah, this isn't, this is, but, uh, uh, so, but we kept on going here. Uh, so in verse uh, 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. It's within Paul's kind of right or privilege or his job to say, hey, here's the free will offering. Pass it around. Nancy. Well, exactly. So, so yeah, so this is the thing is that even though he's not asking, so that, that's the whole kind of fundamental difference is like, hey, this guy look, kind of looks like this, these other dudes, these traveling <coughs> philosophers, but he's not. What is he up to? And so what we find out is what he's up to is he's working within the community and he's teaching in the community and based on this, this relationship, this very close relationship, he is then supported throughout you know, based, you know, the rest of the um, missionary trips. Because if you remember, now this would be like really testing your memory. Acts 17, some of the converts were some very special ladies. Some rich ladies, yeah, right. Who uh, basically, you know, put the bill. So, tell you what, this, this microphone's driving me crazy. All right. Anyways, okay. So, uh, so this is very interesting because I think what we find out is that Paul is utilized. Okay, so let's just kind of turn to this now. Uh, on the handout, I think right in the middle there. When Paul, okay, so we're going to talk about imitation today for a little while. Paul says, hey, imitate me. Chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us. That being Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And of the Lord. Imitators. Paul is saying, hey, look at me, okay? For most of us, I mean, is this, is this like self-promotion or gospel proclamation? Now, of course, since I asked it, you're probably thinking, oh, it's, it's gospel proclamation. But if you apply that in today's circumstance, right, I mean, this guy talks about himself way too much. But let's ask a question. In the United, okay, so in, in the United States, there are enough Christians to at least give non-Christians an impression of what being Christian means, for better, for worse. However, what if you were in a place where there were no Christians? What would you do? To what example would you point people to in order to see who is a Christian? Like, what would you do? All right, now here, this is a great thing. Why don't you just point him to Jesus? All right, well, um, okay. So this is where Paul, Paul, Paul has to do something different. Paul draws upon his um, uh, rabbinic tradition, 
like his teaching tradition, but also the pagan philosopher tradition, which we already kind of just briefly mentioned. All right, but remember, if Paul says, hey, this is what Jesus said, love your neighbor, don't do this, do that, they would say, oh, Jesus doesn't sound any different than our, our gods that already say love our neighbor. We're going we're gonna to do this, I think, next week. We're going to talk a little bit about the gods that were in Thessalonica and how one god died, rose again, one god promised eternal life. and So that goes along with the ethics also, is that when Paul is teaching here, he's not saying, he's not really saying anything fundamentally unique in terms of the content of ethics. Okay? It wasn't like people were like, oh, hey, I never thought about not murdering my neighbor. Thank you for showing me that. It, it, there was, there was a, a similarity in the uh, philosophy. In fact, so you have kind of two philosophies going on, uh, Stoicism and Cynicism. Uh, I don't think Epicureans were in Thessalonica. But, so Stoicism was kind of, uh, well, Stoic, right? Do we, you know what Stoic means? Kind of this kind of even-keeled, non-emotional person. Self-control, yeah, is, I, would, I would say kind of, yeah, the negative way would be cold, but a, a positive say would be he's in control of himself. He or she is in control of herself and is not influenced by these outside factors. And that, that's, that's pretty true to what's happening. Uh, the uh, cynicism is not the way we kind of use cynical in the terms of what? Like how do we use that word? What's that? Sarcastic, Sarcastic nothing really matters. That wasn't really what cynicism was all about. But um, what you find out in Stoicism especially, that you have a lot of Christians who say, this is what you should do. Because what, what does Paul say? What is, you know, you should be self-controlled. That's one of the what? Yeah, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Self-control. So you have a philosopher named Seneca who's, who's used a lot within even early Christian writings. But Paul's not... Paul's not so that's the thing, though, is that so if you start saying things, oh, hey, this sounds like Stoicism. Or, well, I mean, they wouldn't be, yeah. I doubt if people would be saying that because Stoicism as a form of philosophy didn't really come about until later because people, you know, historians have to categorize it. They're like, oh, hey, that sounds like Seneca. Hmm, okay. So they take Seneca and then they say, oh, that, Jesus taught the same thing. Okay, well, that, that gets a little dangerous, right? Because then you have people say, well, why don't you become a Christian? Why can't I just remain doing this. All right, so there's something more going on here, okay? Because if you say, hey, just watch Jesus, they'll say, oh, I'll, I'll, I mean, uh, point to Jesus. Oh, okay. Oh, Jesus sounds kind of like Seneca or whatever the philosopher is going on. So there has to be something else going on here. So what Paul does is he says, hey, I, I think I quote this. This is from uh, some theologian, Mel Herbie. Um, and so he, he's using a practice that's going on today. So teachers weren't simply there to teach ideas and words like kind of college professors are today. Uh, it is basically you, you try to be the teacher in all aspects of life. And I, there's a quote there from Seneca. And then there's a quote from a rabbi. I, I can't remember his name. Well, I didn't, I didn't put it in quotes, though. Rabbis were not merely to impart knowledge of Torah with words, but they were to live a life of Torah. Torah being the whole word of God. This, it, it'd be like the gospel of the Old Testament. 
Uh, that is an example for disciples. Being able to live as one's teacher is valid even above being able to teach as one's teacher. Okay? So Paul, Paul is actually saying, hey, be like me or be imitators of me. And he's basically just doing kind of, oh, everyone would be like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. But there's more to that then. Okay? Um, so these... Uh, non-Jewish Gentiles have a frame of reference that sounds sort of similar to what Paul's talking about, but of course it can't be the same because they're supposed to be Christians. I mean, they're supposed to be different. Yeah, Lindsay? Is it sort of like a preach the gospel and the uh, This is very similar. We're going along those lines. That's right. Because um, words are, words are kind of cheap, in a sense, in this circumstance. Now, the thing is, though, is that with this kind of understanding of pagan philosophy, uh, what, well, I don't, did I put that in here? All right, so, uh, so what Paul does, though, is, um, oh, yeah, so how does Paul say, hey, uh, Okay, so Paul says, imitate us and of the Lord in Thessalonians 1, 6, we just read. So Paul's already making a delineation. So as you, as you follow Paul, who are you really following? You're following Christ. Now part of the issue with, so, so Jewish understanding, they would get that. But the pagan perspective would be very different. Because um, how you ultimately imitate your teacher is by following his, his rules. And that's what Stoicism and Cynicism have a life of rules, and if you follow those, you will be uh, virtuous. Being virtuous, uh, having virtues and happiness kind of going hand in hand for these. So, of course, as Lutherans, we say, hey, that's law, that's law, right? Hey, we got the Ten Commandments, you know, we follow the Ten Commandments perfectly, we're all good, right? But that's a works kind of righteousness way of life. So, um, that's where if you just simply point to Jesus, that frame of mind, they're already going to be like, okay, what are Jesus' rules? And let's just follow him. That's why Paul couldn't say, just listen to the words of Jesus. Because they, their frame of reference still wouldn't be a Christian reference. It would be this pagan philosophy or just this whatever. They'd kind of make it up. And so which, that's very hard for us, I think, today because we always say, hey, just point people to Jesus. And it's abstracted from the life of Christ in people. So, I mean, you just talk, talk to children and say, well, where's Jesus? Jesus is everywhere. But they don't understand that. Children see Jesus in people. In fact, for parents, you, you basically are your God up, up until like seven, eight. Yeah, well, when you, yeah, right, okay, yeah. Supposedly, it's supposed to be a little earlier than that, but when your kids start abstract thinking. Because when they say, when you say God loves them, their only frame of reference of someone loving them is, is you. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so anyways, so that, that's kind of just normal. That's just the way people are. And so Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, 
imitate me. He's not saying because he thinks he's cool, but that's just the reality of things. He's the, he's the one Christian around. Who are they going to look to? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Okay, we have to imitate Paul. Krista. But um, uh, what was he teaching? I think he was teaching love and forgiveness. That's right. And uh, today, I think, um, when you talk on, I mean, you hardly do, but um, when you say something from Christian, yes. you, you feel a criticism right. uh, from London. You know, there's, there's um, yeah. Well, how would the right? Well, yeah. No. So that's actually happened with Paul, right? Because uh, we uh, we already mentioned how um, they were shamefully treated in Philippi, and uh, oh, this is later. Receiving in much much affliction. Well, it's it's actually earlier in chapter one. So. Um, uh, Verse 6, oh yeah, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, so when I, when I talk about the reception of what Paul is speaking, it's not under this kind of, oh man, this is amazing stuff, Paul. No, there was much conflict and much affliction going on, so it wasn't received. And if you look at Acts 17, right? I mean, they got kicked out of the synagogue. It wasn't like received with great joy and, and uh, fanfare. The thing is, though, is when we talk about even love and forgiveness in today's society, I mean, love is a, is a loaded word these days. I mean, how, how, what is probably the most drastic, most extreme kind of uh, upside-downness of love today? Yeah. Homosexuality. In fact, I mean, this whole discussion in politics is, is just fascinating for me because they say, what, are you against love? No, I'm, I'm actually for love. Well, if you're for love, then you must, you know. I mean, so, so this, this is what I'm getting at. Is this is the same kind of circumstance in Paul. We can't talk about love and forgiveness because people have their own perspective of it. And in fact, I mean, we hear this in the, in the political debate about, you know, uh, marriage. I mean, the whole, yeah, you, you should say, you know, marriage equality. I mean, it's very interesting, the terms, but that's a whole different subject. Anyway, so the whole point, though, is, is that Paul is, is getting to these people, and he's using words that they've heard before, but he's saying, th this is different now. You have to see it in real life, and so be imitators of us. Now, the thing is, though, what does that mean for Paul? Okay. Okay, yeah. In fact, it, I think I wrote... Okay, so, yeah, in the middle of the... Probably the back of your... How does Paul imitate Jesus? Now, we could look up all these other passages, but we don't have enough time. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Get rid of that how. I forgot that race that. But um, uh, that just says... Paul is very blatant. It says, be imitator of me. Um, but 2 Corinthians 4.11, and then 1 Corinthians, I know it's a little confusing because it's both chapter 4, but that's right. 1 Corinthians 4.11, I mean 2 Corinthians 4.11, and then 1 Corinthians 4.9-17. This is a very dramatic understanding of imitation. Um, 
And so what Paul's talking about is a sacrificial servanthood, to kind of put it abstractly, which runs up against, completely against the pagan philosophers and even, even today, kind of this abstract notion of what love is. Yes? Okay, that's right. So Donna... That's right. So Donna has pointed out something. I don't know if I... So when Paul's... Again, remember, Paul's writing to a congregation that they've been separated over this very intense experience, and Paul wants them to continue on, if not just get more and more uh, Christ-like. So this is really the only letter. So there's a couple other books that Paul has written that that's, uses the imitation language, but he's petitioning them to be to be imitators, where here he's saying, keep on. Uh, and so that is right. So what they've actually experienced this. They've actually seen it. They've experienced it. And, and so Paul is saying, let's draw encouragement from what has happened already. Uh, they don't have to think something up. They don't have to imagine it. They've actually drawn strength to what's happened. Now, why, why would that be? Well, first of all, I think the obvious question is, you know, uh, I'm sorry, the obvious point is, okay, that makes sense, right? We've experienced this great thing. It's wonderful. Uh, but how could this maybe be hard right now in the life as they're listening to this letter? I, I didn't ask the question correctly. Um, oh, okay, yeah, not only have they going back, but they probably are suffering? Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's, it's a struggle because all the other pagan temples and the imperial religion, these people don't say to Caesar... They don't say Caesar's Lord. They say Jesus is Lord. They don't go to the public uh, parousias when the foreign dignitaries show up. They don't participate in those things. So these people are labeled as uh, they're not very civic-minded, and they're kind of antisocial. So these people are being called out. So Paul's saying, hey, don't you remember this... This, 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 these things that have happened? But, but often, what do we do with that? We say, oh, I want it again. I want it now. Rather than drawing strength to the reality that it's happened before, we kind of lose sight, right? So Paul's like saying, hey, wait, this has happened before in your life. Carol. Right. Oh, yeah, so that's right. Right, and re okay, so this is good because uh, Paul says remembering in chapter 3, oh boy, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Oh, yeah, so Paul, I mean, Paul uses the same thing here in Thessalonians, not abstractly, but very concretely in 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, 
breastplate, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long. So remember us kindly and long to see us as long as to see you. Uh, we just kind of think, oh, hey, just think. Actually, this is very interesting. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. That uh, okay. So there was this. There's this guy. I forgot his name. Epic, it's not Epicurus, but it's like it sounds like his name. Who uh, there's this letter written or this document found, where as a traveling philosopher, he had this really positive experience in this town, and he, you know he keeps going and he. He kind of writes back to these people. And the best, or the, like, the most satisfying thing for a philosopher is to have people remember what he taught. Remember. And so what Paul is actually drawing upon is this reality, is that when they remember, it's not like, oh, it's so nice. It's actually a more dramatic understanding of, of remembrance. Now, in the Old Testament, remembering in the Old Testament meant action. It meant participation. So anytime you, anytime you, you actually read in the, in the Old Testament, God remembers the promise or remembers something, I, just watch what happens and God goes into action. He does something. So the Passover is a meal of remembrance or memorial meal. Memorial remembrance is based on the same word. So when Israel keeps participating in the Passover up till the time of Jesus, when they remember, it's as if they're participating in the Exodus themselves. Of course, now, not to get too much on a tangent here, but you know when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, this is not a, a head thing. This is a whole body participation, spiritual reality that they're participating in things. So when Paul says, you, you have a good memory of us, it goes on with this whole experience. They're reliving this experience that they've had. And, that, and for Paul, that's such a great, that is so happy for him to hear this as a teacher, that they actually are continually participating in all that he's taught, their life together. And so, yeah, Carol, you're absolutely right. I mean, this whole... It's, uh, it, it, I think it's quite, well, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Remembering the Old Testament can also be like a warning, like, you know, they, the Lord did save them, you know, he came out of Egypt, but then also um, they were led astray. Right. Yeah, they were led astray, yep. And, and so people need to remember, I mean, now, Right. Yeah. No. Well, see, see, in the Old Testament, when he says, "Remember what," ha like, so you're off. Like, yeah. So the they're wandering in the wilderness. Don't you remember? When when God says that, it means that if they were to remember, they would come back into this. this so they would participate back into this. So yeah, it's sort of a warning, but it's more of actually a good news to be back on the path that leads to the promised land or the path of righteousness, depending on, uh, you know, if it's a prophet talking or Moses or Joshua or whatever. But, Krista. <laughs> I just was thinking a little bit today. But um, is it not wonderful for our pastor when, uh, when he has um, 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I just wrote to someone yesterday about this. I said, uh, there's nothing more encouraging for a pastor to see his member uh, growing in, I'll, I'll say, his or her faith. Just so, um, yeah, because you see that God's word is taking hold and in, in, in transforming this person. It's very, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, all right, we, I, I think we've talked about everything on the outline. I just know we didn't do it in order. There's a few things we haven't, but I want, was there a hand over here? Yeah. yeah. Right. And I'm kind of curious because if self-control is virtuous and love is virtuous, right. how does self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice rub up against his faith Oh, yeah, good. Okay, so um, that's right. Um, so as Paul, this goes with the, the kind of the theological underpinnings from last week where Paul says, uh, where kind of Paul says, hey, you should live this way. Not, not in terms of rules, but because this is actually God's will. This is God's life, in a sense. Uh, that would be one of the fundamental ways where people would be like, holy smokes, you mean? Because uh, their understanding of the gods were, weren't like being, being part of this. They, they were outside, you know, on Mount Olympus or wherever. And if they came down, there still was this great separation between them. They were kind of like uh, actors in this kind of, uh, life. What Paul's saying is that God has actually saturated or placed himself in the midst of this life and when you live this way you're participating in the life of God. So that would be the first thing. But second though in terms of the self-denial sacrificial is that you actually are participating in Jesus Jesus's love. So, so this is where love and self-control is not defined abstractly which I think are the ways, that's usually how society in general and history has defined those words, but very concretely in the life of Jesus. So you can have self-control and all that stuff and still have self-denial and sacrificial because they all come together in the way Jesus has, has lived. This is also similar to, so it's kind of paradoxical. So this is also last week where Paul says, be ambitious in living a quiet life. I can't remember if that's how it's translated. Um, it's in chapter 5. But, uh, I don't know. Yeah, chapter 5. Okay. Uh, those don't fit together. Being ambitious always goes with politics in a public life. And a quiet life means private, being by yourself. So, ambitiously live quietly. For them, that's, that's kind of odd, unless you realize that as you live this Christian life, people will not let you be private. It will become public. So you have this kind of this paradox, this tension. Holly? Yeah, right. That's right. Okay, yeah. So, so what Paul, yeah, so as Paul does this, his whole point is not himself but Christ, where like these traveling philosophers, I mean, it would be for their own selves. 
maybe at best it would be this kind of abstract virtue, virtuousness. Sure, there's a word for that, but that, that, that's not it. So, you know, okay, so, the, so uh, we, we've got a lot of things today. One of the things is that as we interact with our society around us, we have to be really cognizant of our language. And when we talk Christianese, do we really sound any different than everybody else? A lot of times we don't. And so people are like, it falls on deaf ears. The second thing is, is that our life as Christians is never separated from the life of Jesus. Okay? And so that for Paul is the fundamental thing that he can say, be imitators of me, because he knows it's not him who lives, but Christ who lives in him. That's Galatians chapter 2, and then there's this whole other, uh, in Romans chapter 6, I mean, there's a, a couple passages where Paul really drives that home. Which for us Lutherans, it's a baptismal reality. Okay, but one of the things, though, as it relates to pastors, so this, puts, this, this kind of raises the stake for pastors, but this is also raises the stakes for parishioners and how they understand their pastors. Uh, and this is, I think, I, I don't know if I quoted this last, but so I'll just read it. Because the gifts of God delivered in, this is from Charles Gieschen, professor at, at uh, my seminary in Fort Wayne. Because the gifts of God delivered in the proclamation of the gospel and administration of the sacraments are not dependent upon the personal sanctification of the pastor, right, they're dependent upon Christ and his work, there may be a tendency with, within our Lutheran circles to downplay the significance of the personal example of the pastor in carrying out the mission of the church. Imitation of the apostolic minister as the one who imitates Christ, however, is biblical teaching, reflected in the ordination vows of pastors, because it is important for the mission of the church. So, uh, I've had, in my own past as a pastor, I've only been a pastor six, six years and four months, and I've had a couple times where I said to people, why are you acting this way? Just think about your own experience. And people have completely flatly denied their own experience in order to go off in whatever direction. Uh, what's that? I don't get it. So, so, like, so Paul says, hey, be imitators of us. And as Donna said, don't you remember all these things that have happened? We've been through these things together. Continue on in imitating me and, and the churches in Judea. That's in chapter 2. And so Paul's drawing on this. They'd be like, oh, that's right. Okay, let's keep doing it. Where, where something's bad has happened. There, there's tension in, in Thessalonica. So Paul says, during this tension, he's saying, hey, don't, from your own experience, don't you remember? Keep going. Rather than giving up or whatever, or, or not believing Paul anymore, not seeing him as, his, as, their, as their pastor. And that's happened in my, my, my own experience. I, I, this quote from Gieschen was very enlightening for me because I, I remember very, I, very directly talking to a person saying, uh, so this person said, 
all pastors are, I mean, basically, a general statement about pastors that was very negative. Like, they don't care. They got, yeah, they got their own agenda. I, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, that was it. And this person was talking to me. What is, what is, what is, what is fundamentally flawed in this conversation? <laughs> I am a pastor, and I am doing exactly all the opposite of what this person is saying. So I said to this person, look at me. And what, what did this person do? Not, I mean, no, yeah. Uh, yeah, they ended up leaving the congregation. I, I, I was floored. I was floored. It, it, it just, it, it's enlightened me to me because I said to myself, this person does not see, well, first of all, this person didn't see me as a pastor, which I was kind of bummed out about. Because I had, I felt like I had done all the work, you know. I worked on my tents, you know. Well, I didn't ask for anything in return. I, just like Paul says in Thessalonians, you know, in chapter two here, and what was interesting was I wasn't asking them to imitate me as much as just see that, you know, Jesus can still be, he can work through me. Looking back at it, maybe I should have used like I should have quoted Thessalonians for this person, but, um, and so what's interesting is that as Paul is doing this, and I think pastors need to do this too, is that they don't draw attention to themselves because all Paul is doing is drawing attention to the sacrificial nature of the life of Christian, Christian in him, and he has kind of proof. He's like, hey, look at this. Again, this is not to, to inflate himself, but to demonstrate the reality of Christ in him. Because re remember who Paul was? I mean, he was killing Christians. I mean, you know, that, that, should, that should all mean something in this. But, um, and I think for, for a lot of people, they see their pastor as, you know, coming out of the womb with the collar on. <laughs> they don't really understand that Christ has done something to them, too. And that means something. And so anyways, so I, I, think, I, think, I think this is something that obviously won't happen in our church because we have too many issues with people and authority. You know, they're all to get, you know, it's the politician thing. I'm very cynical towards politicians. That's something I have to get over. Yeah, Donna. Holy, blameless, and righteous. That's it. Right. And righteous. Yep. And when you consider what in the flesh came before. Well, th this is something I, I we didn't get to. I was going to say, when he says holy, blameless, and righteous, is he saying he's perfect? And that is the problem. People say if you're holy, blameless, and righteous, then you must be perfect. But we don't look at our character. <laughs> I, well, yes, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a damn sinner. However, uh, you know, certain things I think we all do right, and we all try to draw strength from pleasing God in those circumstances. But, all right, anyways, we, uh, yeah, hey, great, great conversation. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.